You would open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, and when you have found it, if you would bow together in prayer. Our God and our Father, I pray that you would do a massive work of grace among us this morning. Even as the rain falls steadily outside, I pray that the Holy Spirit would fall upon us. And even as the rain cleanses the earth, I pray that the Spirit would cleanse our hearts by faith. Father, it's by your divine providence that we are dealing this morning with the issue of sin, naming it, battling against it, and seeking to put it to death. I pray that we would see sin for what it is. It is a cancer that would destroy the flock, that would kill the sheep. And I pray that you would cut it out of us. Father, I pray that the word of God this morning would be to us sharper than any double-edged sword, even to the dividing of soul and spirit and joint and marrow, laying bare the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So I pray that the word would cut, and I pray that it would cut deep, but I pray that it would cut in order to heal. For you wound that you might heal. It is your kindness that leads us to repentance. So my prayer this morning is that both words of Scripture would ring out like a bell in this auditorium, reverberating into our very hearts and souls. The word of the law which says that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the word of the gospel which says that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and he is righteous to forgive us us of all of our sins and to cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. Bring both words with power. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. In Galatians 5.17, the Apostle Paul envisions the Christian heart as a field of battle on which there is an intense conflict between the flesh, which is our fallen, corrupt, sin nature which we have inherited from Adam, and the Spirit who indwells every believer. Paul writes in Galatians 5.17, for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. The spirit is within us and he is fighting for God-glorifying holiness. He is willing in us and working in us for God's good pleasure. And the flesh, on the other hand, is fighting for God-demeaning self-indulgence, yearning within us and stirring up within us the desire for the deceitful and fleeting pleasures of sin. Sanctification, then, can be understood as the progressive victory of the Spirit over the flesh such that by the end of your life, the flesh lies Bloody and disarmed upon the field of the battle with the spirit standing victorious over it with the sword raised up ready to deliver the killing strike at the command of Christ on the last day. And that victory is what the Bible calls glorification. It is the final victory of the spirit and the ultimate death of the flesh. And every true believer in this room and for all time, experiences that conflict. 
what John Stott called the fierce and unremitting internal conflict. He said, quote, Indeed, one may go further and say that this is a specifically Christian conflict. We do not deny that there is such a thing as moral conflict in non-Christian people, but we assert that it is fiercer in Christians because they possess two natures, flesh and spirit, in irreconcilable antagonism, end quote. What Stott is saying is that only believers experience this conflict with the ferocity that Paul is describing here. Non-believers have a battle of conscience, it is true. For God has hardwired us to know to a certain extent what is right and wrong, but that conscience over time and with increased sin becomes seared and that conflict becomes less and less. But in Christians, this conflict is raging. The spirit and the flesh doing battle against one another. But I want to begin this morning by promising you that while it is true that every believer is experiencing and will continue to experience in increasing measure this conflict between the spirit and the flesh, it is also true, it is gloriously true, that every genuine believer will experience the ultimate victory of the spirit over the flesh. For God has promised that all whom God has chosen and called and justified, He will ultimately glorify because He has predestined them. He has predestined you who believe to be conformed into the image of His beloved Son. It's going to happen. His Spirit that dwells within you will see to it. And He will not rest until on the last day your flesh is dead. Now I spent several days wrestling over this message message and I was struggling with a tension that it took me a while to name. Finally on Tuesday morning I was able to put my finger on what it was. I was, I was stumbling over the, mis- the mystery of sanctification. So here's, here's my best attempt at defining that mystery. Sanctification is a miracle of God's sovereign grace. It is the working of the Holy Spirit upon the believer. So in one sense we are passive in the act of sanctification. The Holy Spirit does it for us, in us, by His grace, for His glory. But the miracle of sanctification is performed through our diligent, persistent efforts. So to borrow that phrase from John Piper I gave you a few weeks ago, we act the miracle of sanctification. Piper says, quote, when it comes to killing my sin, I don't wait passively for the miracle of sin killing to be worked on me. I act the miracle. In other words, unless we act the miracle of sanctification, sanctification will not occur. But the miracle and the mystery of sanctification is that our acting is actually the Spirit's acting as He's willing and working in us for God's good pleasure. Our acting is the Spirit's acting because His willing and working in us goes before us and is underneath us. And this whole mystery is that we are acting and the Spirit's causing it. And I scratched my head over that for a number of days. I still am, to be honest with you. The paradox is is seen throughout Scripture. For example, Ezekiel 36, God promises this, listen, He says, unilaterally, I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. All right? So God's going to put his spirit in us, and he's going to cause us to be holy. Cool. Hebrews 12, 14, same Holy Spirit says, Pursue sanctification. Pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If if you're not being sanctified, you're not going to make it to heaven. You won't see the Lord. Cool. (laughs) So which one is it? Is it God causing his people to walk in holiness? Or are God's people responsible to pursue holiness in order that they may see the Lord? And the biblical answer is, 
both. God works the miracle of sanctification upon us, and we act the miracle of sanctification in our lives. This mystery is probably best described in two passages from the Apostle Paul. The first is in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, where Paul exhorts the church, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work within you to will and to work for his good pleasure. So the command to the church is to pursue holiness, but the promise to the church is that God will cause us to pursue holiness in accordance with his good pleasure. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, It was by the grace of God that I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored. I was striving. I was working diligently. I labored more than any of them, yet, not I, but the grace of God at work within me. So it was the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit that was causing, producing Paul's labor in the ministry. All right, so let's go back to the imagery of the battlefield for a second. This battle between the spirit and the flesh. Don't get the idea that our job is just to sit on the sidelines, waiting idly by, passively watching as the spirit defeats the flesh. That's not the biblical picture. We act the miracle. We pursue the victory. We kill indwelling sin. We put to death the deeds of the flesh. But we do so by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit through faith. Now, I'm not going to purport to solve and explain every facet of this mystery that is sanctification and our working and the Spirit's working and the Spirit's working in and through and under and above and in front and behind our working. But my aim in this message, I want to make very clear from the outset, my aim is to call you to a relentless and merciless assault upon the sin that remains in your heart and life and to partake this assault by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. My goal is to warn you that if you do not win the battle against your flesh, you will not be saved. Yet also to assure you that by the Spirit, every one of you who believe will emerge from this life victorious over the flesh and so be saved. Your victory having already been assured and secured by Christ at the cross. So how do we do this? How do we act the miracle of sanctification? How do we heed Paul's exhortation in Galatians 5.16 where he says, Walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? Well, theologians have long spoken of a double-sided coin that is sanctification. Two aspects of our growth in holiness. The first is what is known as mortification or the putting to death. The daily act of killing sin, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, dying to self. Or as Paul calls it in Galatians 5.24, crucifying the flesh with its passions and desires. Mortification. There's a death that needs to take place. A daily killing in order for us to grow in holiness. But that's only one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is what is known as vivification or the coming to life. By grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul described it in this way in Ephesians 4, 22 and 24. He says, I'm going to give you two commands, you who believe in Christ. I want you to put off, take off, lay aside the old man, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. Okay, so we're laying aside, we're taking off, we're putting off. And I want you to put on the new man which has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So the two sides of the coin of sanctification involve a putting off and a putting on. A putting to death and a coming to life. And that's going to capture our attention over the next two weeks. This morning we're going to deal with the first side of that coin. The miracle of sin killing. 
the putting to death of the deeds of the flesh that Paul will outline for us in this passage. So the questions of the morning are this. There are three. Question one, how do the de- or what do the deeds of the flesh look like? Question two, how do we put these deeds of the flesh to death? Question three, what happens if we don't? All right, so let's begin with the deeds of the flesh. Paul lists these deeds of the flesh in verses 19 through 21. Let's read those together. We'll actually jump back up and start at verse 16 where Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not... Under the law. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. But if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So you heard there in verses 19 through 21, Paul giving us a list of 15 deeds of the flesh. Now this list is not intended to be exhaustive, because at the very end of the list, Paul just tacks on a phrase, and things like these, which function as as an etc. of sorts. In other words, I'm just giving you an idea. I'm painting a portrait for you of what a fleshly man and a fleshly woman look like, a person whose heart is proud and self-indulgent and rebellious, this will be the overflow of that kind of heart. The very opposite of a heart that is loving God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving their neighbor as themselves. So we're going to look at a portrait of a person who is ruled by the flesh. Paul seems to group these deeds of the flesh into four realms. Sexual sins, religious sins, relational sins, and sins of dissipation or a lack of self-control. All right, so let's begin with the sexual sins. Immorality. It's a general term for sexual sin. Fornication, adultery, homosexuality, pornography. In fact, the Greek word is porneia, from which we get the word pornography. It refers to anything that falls outside of God's design for the sexual relationship that he designed to be enjoyed only within the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. It's any illicit sexual activity, whether it takes place with another person or with a computer or television magazine. Impurity literally means uncleanness. It speaks to to the defilement of the body and the estrangement from God that results from sexual immorality. Understand this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that those who practice sexual immorality, every other sin they commit is outside of their body, but they're sinning against their body. They are defiling their body, which is intended to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. Something happens. Not just to our spirits and to our souls, but it defiles us. We give ourselves over to sexual immorality. Sensuality. Sensuality is unbridled sexual license. Debauchery. The total loss of limits, the lack of restraint, decency, and self-respect. That word refers to extreme, unblushing, unrestrained immorality in the search of new realms of self-indulgent pleasure. I, I've heard, I heard something recently that really scared me. They're doing a lot of uh, tests on the long-term and short-term effects of pornography on the brain. Uh, the digital generation in which pornography has been available at the touch of a button and the click of a mouse and now on your 
on your smartphones. It's been around for about 20 years now, 20 going on 25 years. And so they're able to do these long-term studies. An addiction to pornography literally remaps your brain. And it dulls the ability to experience sexual pleasure such that if you're going to experience the same high, as it were, that you got from viewing this level of pornography, this level will become not nearly as exciting to you, and you've got to bump it up a level. And you've got to bump it up a level beyond that to where we've got junior high kids addicted to the kind of stuff that you wouldn't even dream about. That's that kind of word. It's terrifying unblushing, unrestrained immorality. Paul then lists religious sins, idolatry, it's the worship of false gods. Or I might define it this way, it is finding your joy and your security and your identity in that which is not God. And it could be some crafting of gold or silver or wood or stone, or it could be a job, a position, power, prestige, the praise of men. Whatever it is that you find your joy, your security, and your identity in, if it is not God, it's an idol. Sorcery. Greek word, pharmacia. Witchcraft in the NIV is the involvement in the occult. Consulting with psychics, mediums, spiritists, communicating with the dead or with demons. The root word actually points to the use of hallucinogenic drugs, which were used in occultic practices, which creates an interesting link between drug addiction and the occult. Next, Paul lists relational sins. Enmity or hatred refers to any kind of political or racial hostility. It's hating people who aren't like you. Strife is the creating of rivalries, kind of the Capulet Montague sort of thing, or maybe in the Ozarks, Hatfield and McCoy. Fighting that ought to have no place within the heart of a believer. Jealousy or envy, wanting what other people have. Timothy George writes that to envy what someone else has is to fling your own gifts before God in unthankful rebellion and spite. Outbursts of anger, uncontrollable verbal violence. It's what used to be called an Irish temper. Maybe it still is. Disputes, it's the political word, it's ladder climbing, self seeking ambition. Dissensions is the creating of cliques and elitist groups within the church, the haves and the have-nots, the insiders and the outsiders. Factions is a word from which we derive our modern word heresy, and it points to the dividing of the church into splinter groups based on theological error. We believe this, and they believe that, and they can't both be right. Envying. Harboring malice toward another person because of their successes. Check your heart for a second. Can you genuinely be happy when something good happens to someone else? If not, envying in the biblical sense of the word may be a sin that you're still chained to. Finally, Paul lists those sins of dissipation or excess. Drunkenness combined with the last word which... I think perhaps unfortunately is translated orgies, carousing, wild parties, and other translations. It's painting a picture of just wild, limitless, dissolute, self-indulgent living. A life devoid of self-control. All right, 15, long list, dirty deeds. I wonder if... What Paul has done, I sort of envision, since we're using battle imagery, that he just sort of plucked out 15 arrows and, and let them fling. I wonder if any of these 15 arrows have found a chink in the armor of your pride this morning. Maybe struck to the heart by the power of the Spirit. Let me ask some questions. Is there impurity in your life due to a sexual relationship with someone that is not your spouse. 
Is there an addiction to pornography? Maybe a secret indulgence in Fifty Shades of Grey, which is the same thing. Are you dabbling in psychics, astrology, or other occultic New Age activities? What about those frequent outbursts of temper? Do your children think of you of one who flies off the handle with little or no provocation? Does your ambition cause you to do things at work that you wouldn't dare confess at church? Unethical things. Are you marked by ingratitude as you covet your neighbor's job or your neighbor's home or your neighbor's job or your neighbor's wife? Are you a closet alcoholic? On the, on the exterior, people at church think that guy's got everything all together, but secretly inside the closed doors and the drawn drapes of your home, your family cringes when you pop open the bottle or break open the can. If any of these deeds of the flesh describe you, let me issue you an encouragement and a warning. Okay, I trust that in one degree or another, this list has struck many if not all of you, at one place. At a deep gut level, you're going to respond to this list in one of two ways. Either you will hate the sin and desire to forsake it, even if you've tried and failed to forsake it time and time again. Okay, If that describes you, you hate the sin that you love. You hate yourself for being susceptible to the sin. I want to give you some encouragement this morning and some weapons that will help you to put that sin to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. But others of you are going to respond in a different way. You don't hate your sin. You know, having been in church long enough, that you probably should, but you don't. In fact, you're quite comfortable in it, as long as nobody else finds out, unconcerned, secretly loving it. It is to you that Paul issues the strongest of warnings at the end of verse 21, and I want you to look down there with your own eyes. He says, I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you. Stop there. This was close enough to Paul's heart that he told them about it from the front end when he was there in person. And it's important enough that he's going to write it again in this letter some six months later. Paul's not joking around. I've warned you twice now, he says, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says in another place in Romans 8.13, if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So let me state this clearly and unambiguously so that no one I pray, has any confusion residing within your heart and your mind this morning. If your attitude this morning in your seat right now is not one of repentance, if you are not engaged in the battle against the flesh, if you are not killing sin, you will die in your sin and you will not be saved. You will be cut off from God, excluded from His kingdom, and exposed to an eternity of His wrath and judgment. It's not a guilty little pleasure. It is a soul-destroying, sheep-killing cancer. And if by the Spirit you don't cut it out, it will destroy you. And I'm not talking about physically speaking. This is not one of those things where, where I might die physically as a result of the sin, but then, you know, once saved, always saved. That's not what Paul is saying. Beloved, take it seriously. 
So let's ask the question, okay? How can Paul, you know, Mr. Free Grace, Mr. Justification by Faith, how can he say such a thing? Is he not teaching a salvation that now is based at least partly on works? Absolutely not. Paul is in perfect accord with the rest of Scripture. Because as much as Paul is the apostle of free grace, and as much as Paul is the apostle of justification by faith, Paul is also the apostle of the Holy Spirit. And remember that the good news of the gospel is not just that by the cross of Christ we've been set free from the penalty of sin. It's that by the Spirit of Christ we've been set free from the power of sin. Therefore, those who continue to live in unrepentant slavery to sin give clear evidence that they have not received the Holy Spirit. And if they have not received the Spirit of Christ, they're none of His, Paul says in Romans 8, 9. And since the Spirit is received, Galatians 3, 2, by the hearing of faith, if they don't have the Spirit, they don't truly believe. And if they don't truly believe, then they are not justified and they are still in their sins. What Paul is saying here is not a denial of justification by faith alone. It is the clear outworking of justification by faith alone. So be warned, lovers of sin, who hide beneath the banner of once saved, always saved, who are relying upon a past decision which bears absolutely no fruit in the present, Once saved, always saved is true insofar as it means that those who are truly born again and justified can never become unborn again or unjustified. But it is not true and in fact is worthless if it is used as a license for sin, as an excuse for a dead faith that bears no fruit. If you refuse to repent and if you refuse to put to death the deeds of the flesh that remain within your heart, you will find yourself on the day of judgment saying, Lord, Lord, did I not raise my hand in that church service? Did I not walk down that aisle in that revival service? Did I not pray that prayer with the preacher? Did I not attend church regularly? Did I not do religious things And speak religious words and you will hear from Christ, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. So don't make this harder than it is. Don't gloss over Galatians 5.21. If Paul thought enough to warn the Galatians about it twice, surely we ought to give careful attention to it for about 10 minutes this morning like we've done. No one who is born of God, makes a practice of sin. Because his seed abides in him. And he cannot sin. That is, he cannot make a practice of sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother, says John in 1 John 3, 9 through 10. So be warned. If you are in that category this morning, my prayer is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would be shattered by the word that says that you will be excluded and locked out of the kingdom unless you repent. And my prayer is that the kindness of God in saying, come, I I will remove that sin from you. You cannot enter with your sin, but I will gladly take it from your shoulders at the gate. My prayer is that you would hear the call of Christ saying, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am humble and gentle of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My prayer is that the Spirit would take your hard heart and shatter it into a thousand little pieces. And that the Spirit would take... His creative word that creates out of nothing something and calls into being that which did not exist and he will speak life into your soul and it will arise and there will be a heart of flesh that hates sin and loves Christ. 
I want that to happen to you. And so if you're in that situation and by the gracious, sovereign power of the Holy Spirit, you have been awakened to the fact that you've never repented of your sins, do it now. Go to Jesus and say, I I don't want this anymore. Here, you take it. And he will. And he will give you his righteousness and the gates of heaven will swing open before you. But you cannot walk through and they will not open until you repent. But most of you are not in that situation. Most of you hate your sin. Most of you look at this, this list of dirty deeds and you, you find yourself saying, I, I see myself there and there and there. And I hate it. I hate it that I lose my temper. I hate it that I find myself discontent with the life that God has given me and I want somebody else's life. I hate it that I'm addicted to this and that I can't rid myself of that. I hate it. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And the good news is thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He will free you. He will free you. You want to be pure, you want to be holy, you can't do it on your own, he'll do it for you. You will be conformed into the image of his son. God has set his seal upon it, and his glory is at stake, and God is going to see to it that his glory is manifested in you. But, that conformity, that transformation... That sanctification will only come about through, I love this phrase, I stole it from Kevin DeYoung, not mine. Spirit-empowered, gospel-driven, faith-fueled effort. By the Spirit, Paul says, Romans 8.13, you must put to death the deeds of the flesh. Or the quote that I gave you from John Owen at the top of your page. You'll either kill sin... Or it will kill you. So look at Galatians 5.24 and here's how we'll end. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Notice the past tense of that verb. Have crucified. that's That's a reference to your conversion. When you first came to Christ... You repented of your sin. Your sin was nailed to the cross. You crucified your flesh with its passions and desires. But your initial repentance that took place in conversion opened up a life of repentance that becomes a way of walking, a daily act of repenting of sin and returning to Christ. In fact, Martin Luther would say in the first of his 95 theses that when Jesus said repent, he he meant walk in repentance, not a one-time act. And if your one-time act of repentance did not result in a life of repentance, then it wasn't real repentance. So we hear Jesus say, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I die daily. Romans 8, 13, if by the Spirit you are putting to death, present tense, continuous action. So the question I want to close with is how do we do this? It's clear we've got to do something. We've got to kill sin before it kills us. So how do we crucify the flesh? mortify the flesh, put to death the flesh, kill indwelling sin. Well, crucifixion is a violent death, and killing your sin is going to take violent action. But the reward, which is holiness and seeing the Lord, Hebrews twelve fourteen, is worth it. So this morning, I want to stock your arsenal with four sin-killing weapons that I hope that you will employ in the battle against the desires of the flesh. Four sin-killing weapons which you can utilize to put sin out of its misery. First sin-killing weapon is this, confession. Now I'm not talking about the confessing of your sin to God, although that is a necessary component of repentance. 
What I'm talking about is the James 5.16 type of repentance, which says, confess your sins to one another. Whoa. That's the line in the sand. Those who are serious about their sin are the only ones who are going to take that step. Why? Because it's embarrassing. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. I would venture to say that for some of you, one of the reasons why you cannot put sin to death, why you continually give in to that besetting sin, returning to it like a dog returns to its vomit, 2 Peter 2.22, is because you're only confessing your sin privately to God. See, sin, sin thrives in the shadows. It dwells in the darkness. And if you want to put it to death, what you need to do is drag it into the light and expose it for what it really is. It is not a guilty little pleasure. It is not a minor character flaw. It is a soul-destroying, God-demeaning cancer. And if you will confess this sin one to another, what you will do is take the sword and thrust it into the underbelly of sin and it will catch flesh and it will die. Now, I'm not usually a fan of public confessions in front of the whole church. I don't really think that's the place for it unless the whole church is is aware of the sin already. Most of the people in the church can't handle your confession because it would tempt them to pride. Glad I'm not like that guy. He's got a lot of problems. It would tempt them to gossip. Did you hear what happened at our church today? Rather, I think confession is best made to either a small group, like Connect, or to one or two trusted people who can receive your confession in righteousness without thinking less of you, can guard your confession in confidence without spilling it to those who don't need to know, and can pray for your healing and deliverance. So I would say, number one, to those of you who have some sin that you've been trying to put to death but haven't, try confession. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Second sin-killing weapon is amputation. Remember, so crucifixion is a violent thing. And sin needs to die a violent death. Matthew 5, Jesus says this, 29 and 30. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now I'm going to go out on a limb here and say Jesus didn't intend for this to be taken literally. But rather figuratively. So let me paraphrase what he means. If your computer or smartphone causes you to sin because you keep accessing pornography then cancel your internet or your data plan or else get rid of your laptop or your phone altogether because it would be better for you to enter into heaven unconnected and phoneless than to enter into hell with your iPhone intact. You may have to be the guy at the table who's not taking phone calls because you can't handle one. But it would be better to know that you can't handle a phone with a data plan than to keep the data plan secret and your addiction secret and to enter through the gates of hell for all of eternity. If your dating relationship results in fornication, then break up. Because it is better for you to enter heaven single than to enter hell with a girlfriend or boyfriend. If you have a friend that tempts you to sin through gossip or drunkenness or whatever it may be, then end the friendship. Because it would be better for you to enter heaven and have them think of you as a prude rather than to enter into hell and have the praise of men. Cut it off. Amputate it. And you can tell the guys who are serious about getting rid of pornography if they get rid of their computer. Otherwise, they're just playing around. The third sin-killing weapon for your arsenal is fasting. 
the discipline nobody wants to talk about. I don't, I don't. I don't like to fast. Although the word fast is not used, I think the idea of fasting lies behind James 4, 7 through 10. Listen to this passage. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Listen, be miserable and mourn and weep. Words which are often linked with fasting in the Bible. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. In other words, one of the reasons why many of us have trouble getting rid of sin is because we really don't feel that sorry for it. And one of the reasons why we really don't feel that sorry for it is because we haven't taken the time to mourn it. Fasting is a neglected discipline within the church and I suspect that's why holiness is neglected as well. One of the reasons. Fasting is a way of teaching your flesh that it can't have everything it wants. Which is a good lesson for your flesh to learn. It's a way of establishing that Christ is the master of my body, not the body the master of my soul. So if there, if there is some besetting sin of your heart which you haven't been able to kill, I would urge you to consider fasting. If you feel spiritually dull or numb to conviction, and you know that you should feel conviction, you used to feel conviction, but you tend not to feel conviction anymore, discipline your flesh through fasting. Mourn over sin, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord that he may exalt you in due time. Finally, let me suggest one last sin-killing weapon, and that is worship. Life, holiness, it's not all about don't do this. It's not all negative. We we need to train our souls to desire superior pleasures. We need to train our souls not to settle for the inferior fleeting pleasures of sin, but rather to long for the eternal joys of righteousness. We need to train our souls to drink deeply from the cool and sweet and refreshing fountain of living waters so that we won't be satisfied any longer with the tepid, stagnant waters of sin. I like what C.S. Lewis wrote in the introduction to his essay, entitled The Weight of Glory. Listen to what he says. He says, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who goes on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. In other words, if you would kill the desire for the fleeting plastic pleasures of sin, then you need to expose your soul to the joys of God. A child who has experienced the holiday at sea is not going to be satisfied anymore making mud pies in the slum. So we need to teach ourselves, in the words of Lewis, not to be so easily pleased. Such that we settle for sin when the living Christ offers offers himself to us. In the means of grace, through word, through prayer, through worship, through fellowship, through the sacraments, and all of the other means of grace... So while seeking to slay the enemy of sin, whether it be through confession or amputation or fasting, don't only focus on the negative. Fill your soul. Your soul's a vacuum. Fill it with the positive. The, the fight against sin is not a fight against joy. It's a fight for joy. Joy that lasts Joy that overflows, joy that is abundant. So do not neglect to fill your soul and to battle sin with the superior pleasures of Christ. God does not want us to live a life devoid of joy. He wants us to kill sin so that we can experience infinite and everlasting joy. Satan has come, right Mark? 
to steal and kill and destroy. But Christ has come that you might have life and joy abundant. So my call this morning is to put sin to death in order that you may experience the infinite and abundant joy of the freedom of holiness. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, I pray that conviction has come this morning. I pray that the Holy Spirit has placed His finger upon something in the heart of every person who's here. And I pray that we would respond to conviction in repentance, confession, and forsaking of that sin. May we be a people who pursue holiness by putting sin to death. Not playing with it. Not considering it a small thing. But hating it. Hating it so much that we'll, we'll humble ourselves and confess it to one another. That they may pray for us, that we may be healed. Hating it so much that we'd rather do without that which leads us to sin. Hating it so much that we would rather buffet and discipline our bodies in order to teach the flesh, no, you cannot rule me. You cannot have everything you desire. Father, I pray that the kindness of God would lead your people to repentance this morning. And so we close with this promise. If you would confess your sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all of your unrighteousness. Beloved, don't you want to be clean? Don't you want to be forgiven? Don't you want to walk out of those doors free? Then I invite you to confess. Confess your sin to God. Confess your sin to one another. He will hear. He will heal. He will forgive. He will sanctify. I pray this in Jesus' name.